Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 102nd Wellness Podcast. I am Jill Garvin. I am the Director of Psychological Health for the 102nd Intelligence Wing. We are doing monthly podcasts on different subjects around wellness. If anyone would like to come on the podcast, um, please contact me. I am in the global. You can email me or you can also contact me at 508-237-6652. I am very honored to have a wonderful guest with us today. Her name is Kathleen Shine O'Brien. She is a licensed mental health counselor who has a private practice here in Sandwich, Massachusetts. Kathleen is also a behavioral health consultant for the Samaritans of Cape Cod and the islands and sharing kindness. And she's going to explain what what these um, organizations are, a nonprofit whose mission is to raise suicide awareness through education, advocacy, and prevention, and to support survivors of suicide loss and all those who grieve. Kathleen was also previously the assistant director of counseling at the Massachusetts Maritime Academy, which she'll talk about, where she was the program director for the Garrett Lee Smith Campus Suicide Prevention Grant funded through SAMHSA. Um, I am also on the board of the Samaritans here on Cape Cod. They have many wonderful programs. Uh, They have a a crisis line. Um, They have a lot of prevention programs working with the elderly. They have different groups. And Kathleen is one of the first names that I heard when when I joined the board and when I um, started working with the Samaritans as kind of the, the, the local expert around suicide prevention. She's very well respected. And so I'm just so excited to hear what she has to say, especially, um, you know, we're about to have our resilient tactical pause day here on Saturday. And, uh, and we're just looking at ways to improve our wing culture and our resiliency and, and how we connect. So I'm really looking forward to her expertise and her experience. So, Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Jill. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. I'm so honored to be here. Um, You know, it's funny, and and you might think about this too. When you were in graduate school, did you have any coursework that was specific to suicide? No. I didn't. I didn't. And we would talk about suicide as part of other courses. Uh, we We were taught how to assess for suicidal ideation. But we never had any classes on what suicide was about, what suicidal thinking was about. And I think it sort of bred in, in many clinicians um, a little bit of a fear factor. Mm-hmm. So quite often I will say to colleagues, what are your policies around suicide? What are you engaging in for prevention work? And people say nothing. So if that's the sort of thought process of clinicians, it's no wonder that we have such great stigma around suicide in the general population. Yes. And we know that it's changing, but it really isn't changing quite fast enough. Um, I think I shared a story with you before, and I'll share it again. You would never fly an airline who said, we only had three fatal plane crashes this year. 
because three isn't acceptable. Right. Sounds ridiculous. So when we say our suicide numbers are decreasing, although sadly a lot of the research is saying that they're increasing, no suicide deaths is what our goal should be. But the bigger question is, how do we get there? What do we do? So going back in time and remembering that I didn't have any suicide prevention, intervention, postvention training, um, I, I took a leap of faith and I applied for my job at Mass Maritime Academy. Um, and my job, or the job that was open, was because they had received the SAMHSA Garrett Lee Smith campus-wide suicide prevention grant, which was a three-year grant, and Mass Maritime was the second cohort of colleges and universities around the country to get that grant. Um, so in my interview, I was honest and said what I don't know about suicide prevention, but that I was willing to learn. And that started my trajectory and gave me my passion about doing suicide prevention work because I recognized how pervasive it is and how important the work is. So fortunately for me as a grantee, I was able to access technical assistance from the Suicide Prevention Resource Center here in Massachusetts, but also uh, it, it gave me the availability to go to conferences all around the country where I got to be taught and trained by the people that are considered longtime experts in the field of suicidality. And that's what has carried me through and it continues to be my passion. When I um, was at Mass Maritime, the Cape and Islands Suicide Prevention Coalition started. Mm -hmm. And so I became a member of that, which is how I met Stephanie Kelly, mm -hmm. who's the executive director of the Samaritans. Um, and so we forged both a, a collegial relationship as well as a deep friendship because of our passion in this field. And sharing kindness, um, which is the other nonprofit that you mentioned, um, was, was born from a tragic loss that Dr. Kimmy Walters and her husband Davis suffered when their youngest son Jeremy died of suicide three years ago. And they turned their tragedy into action. And so they do a lot of work in the community, particularly with young people, um, on suicide prevention efforts, on mental health assessments in schools, um, and again, working really hard to, as Jeremy's friends call it, smash the stigma. Mm. So that's kind of in a nutshell where all of this um, stemmed from and, and kind of where it is now. When I think about it in terms of military and I think about it in terms of culture, it's fascinating to me that when I started in this field, the Air Force model of suicide prevention was sort of the gold standard. Mm -hmm. And that kind of prevention work that was done was very transparent, it was very cutting edge. Um, but I guess none of it's enough. Mm. So, so what are we missing? Who are we missing? And why are we missing it? I think 
a lot of it goes back to the stigma piece. I think we have a, as hard as we try, we have a culture that is resistant to help-seeking behaviors. Yeah. There is still a stigma. If you had a bellyache, you would have no problem going into the Falmouth Hospital ER. But if you're feeling highly anxious or you're having a panic attack or you're depressed and you haven't gotten out of bed for three days you're probably not so likely to present there. So I I think of it, Jill, as kind of like there's this Jersey barrier at our neck. And so what happens above that Jersey barrier in our head is stigmatized and what happens below, it's okay to to seek help. And I think that's what we, we try to change on a daily basis. And I would imagine it gets compounded in the military and in the military culture where we have our bravest of brave people doing the hardest job I can imagine. And how does that not impact you from a mental health and overall wellness perspective? Mm -hmm. But it's a secret if we're struggling. Right. So these kinds of podcasts are so important because we're trying desperately to normalize those hard days and those big emotions that impact not just our jobs, but our marriages, our relationships with our kids, our relationships in the community. And so Kevin Hines, who uh, is a suicide attempt survivor, he survived his, uh, his jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. Kevin Hines calls it the ripple effect. So when our mental health isn't intact, it has a strong negative impact on every part of our life, Mm. including the community at large. And if we could have people understand that and that there are services for people and that there is hope and people can get better, then why wouldn't we access that? Why would we let that stigma get in the way of us feeling better and, and being our true authentic selves so that we can bring our best to our work and our family and our community. Absolutely. Speaking of, of stigma, and, and again, I, I do think there's been some improvement, but like you said, not enough. Someone just this morning was talking to me about a member they were concerned about and suggested that they come and talk to me. And the person said, I'm, I'm not going and talking to some shrink. It, just like that. And So what does that tell you? That, that there's a, we're, we're sort of put in a box. We clinicians mm-hmm. are sort of put in a box. And, and it's fine for anybody else to go see us. Yeah. But I'm not doing that. Yeah, I'm not doing that. And, and even though I try to do as much as I can to connect with people um, to and, and, and that's sort of the beauty of being embedded here at the wing level as opposed to being an, a, you know an out, outside person is that I can walk around I can get to know people I can see them at lunchtime I can do those sorts of things so um, 
so it might feel a little bit more comfortable reaching out to me. And and I think that that, that does help. But there, but there are still, you know, some of those folks that just, especially some that have been in the military for quite a while, and that's definitely how it used to be. And that's old school that's thinking. That's old school thinking, yeah. I remember my mother... And dad talking about an uncle who was in World War II, um, and he came back to Boston, a very changed man. He had been in Europe for three years. And in those days, um, what we now call PTSD, they called shell shock. And some of the behaviors that he exhibited, which were addictive behaviors, we now know and recognize as a temporary solution to how he was feeling. So he engaged in gambling, he engaged in, in excessive drinking. But as an, as an adult, I understand it now mm-hmm. because he was self-medicating with those things. But people didn't talk about anything except it was shell shock and accepted him for the way he was because of that. But no one ever thought that he, there was a way that he could seek help and get treatment for it. Oh. So from a military perspective, it's relatively new that we identify PTSD. But I think there's also another part of that that we miss, and that is if we have pre-existing anxiety and depression, which I believe most of the population experiences at some point or other, it may not rise to a clinical level, Mm -hmm. but if we experience that and then we add um, military work on top of it, and I think I would say this as well for first responders, Mm -hmm. the propensity to have an exacerbation of those symptoms um, is, is very clear. And the shame that often gets attached to that, which breeds the stigma, that I should be able to overcome this. I should be able to make this stop and push it away is another piece of what inhibits people from seeking the help that they need. And I think it's, even with some of our younger military members, um, it's not just the old school folks, it's the younger. You're not going to go see a shrink. They're not going to be able to help me. What can they do? I can handle. I can handle it. And that little voice that says, not only can I handle it, I'm supposed to handle it. One of the things about human beings is that we are wired to be relational and connect, which is why people that are put in solitary confinement um, struggle so much. That, That imposed isolation does something to our brain because that's not how we're supposed to be. And so when people become disconnected, whether by their own choices or by other things that happen in life, when people don't feel like they have a sense of belonging, those are the times that suicidal ideation often begins. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thomas Joyner has a theory about um, the lack of belonging, perceived burdensomeness. That's the sort of, my family would be better off without me. 
Mm-hmm. I'm a burden to them because of the way I feel. Um, I'm not fun to be around. Um, and then when when sort of all of those pieces collide, it presents the perfect storm for someone to become actively suicidal. So that that the passive ideation, that those thoughts stop becoming fleeting thoughts and they become uh, bigger and louder where people actually come up with a plan and come up with a means, uh, sometimes even a date. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up because one of the the reasons or the purpose for this, and I explained to you what we're doing on, on Saturday for our Resilience um, Tactical Pause Day, and we're going to have a speaker, our command, uh, Colonel Gaglio, our commander, is going to speak, and then we're breaking up into small groups. And the point of that is is to connect um, with each other as opposed to just, you know, doing a training and, you know, which we've done plenty of and in the Air Force, in the military, but so we can uh, connect with each other, get to know each other a little bit better, and of course not not just on one day, but, but to hopefully do this a little bit differently, and, and just like you said, uh, connecting and belonging, that, that is the way to, to build a resilient culture and, and a resilient person. And I think that is is what we have been been missing. I think you're right. And I think the other thing is we've had so many widely reported suicides among celebrities. Mm-hmm. And one of the commonalities among those people seems to be that they wore masks. Yeah. And so to the outside world, they looked like they were all together, that they had it, that they got it. And I can imagine the burden of having to feel like you have to wear a mask 12 or 15 hours a day and then go home and in the comfort of your own room, take it off and how exhausting that must be. And so what would it be like if we had a culture where we don't want people to wear masks. Right. Where when we say to somebody passing in the hallway, hey, how are you? We don't expect them to just say fine mm-hmm. and keep walking. Great, I'm okay. And when I say to you, hey, Jill, how are you? And if you said to me, hey, you know, today's not one of my best days. Do you have five minutes and I can tell you what's going on? Right. And I get to say, I will make five minutes for you, but I can't do it right now. And then we make that plan, and then you come, and you can relieve yourself of that burden. Yeah. And we can brainstorm together about how you might resolve that. And what do you suppose happens? We've established an emotional connection. Mm-hmm. We've established a human connection that defies anything in the world. And we allowed ourselves to be vulnerable and yet strong. This is the other thing. Um, Brene Brown has a talk on Netflix, and she says, how 
ridiculous is it that people think you are either vulnerable or courageous? <laughs> In fact, it takes courage to be vulnerable. Yes. And then it opens up the opportunity of conversation where somebody can say, you know what, I know something about that. So when I was able to say to a colleague, when my daughter was struggling in high school, I'm so worried about her. I was embarrassed to say, this is beyond my control because as a therapist, shouldn't I have it all together? Shouldn't I know how to parent my kid that's depressed and has anxiety? But I was too emotionally connected. I couldn't be her therapist. I needed to be her mom, and I needed help about it. I recognized that I had my own stigma, and I carried my own shame about the shoulds. And once I released myself of that, well, don't you know? I have colleagues that say, me too. Oh, yeah, I know something about that. I had depression and anxiety when I was in high school, and I recognize it in my own children. Suddenly, we've opened up this dialogue, or as sharing kindness says, start the conversation. Mm -hmm. And all it takes is one brave, courageous, vulnerable soul to say, this is what I'm going through. And for a second human to say, I know something about that. Yeah. I really, uh, going back to, to the example that you gave, um, somebody walking down the hallway, asking them if they're okay, and that you'll give them a few minutes of your time. I like that you gave a concrete example, because I think sometimes, especially here for, for some members that might not have that language and they're not comfortable with it, um, we have some really highly intelligent folks here at our, our at our wing, and sometimes people aren't that comfortable with the emotional stuff. Well, how are you doing? I'll, I'll give you five minutes of my time. Like, they don't even necessarily have that language. A lot of people do. And so I really like that you, you gave that example, because I think if, um, and, and that's one of the things that we are trying to do. We have the ACE concept here, ask, care, escort, and we give people examples of the language and questions to ask. And so I do hear people repeating that now, now that they um, they have that language and they've had a lot of training around that. And so I think when people uh, are given those examples, they're, they're more apt to, oh, that's how I ask that question. Right. Or I can give people just five minutes to listen. I don't have to fix it. So isn't that the key We also tend to want to run in and rescue and fix it and make people happy. Absolutely. And that's not our job. Mm -mm. Sometimes people just need to be able to literally get it off their chest and feel relieved of that burden. And it's interesting. I had a conversation with a woman, a client um, whose husband died of suicide. And she said, in the early days, all I wanted was for somebody to just sit next to me on the couch and let me cry. I didn't need anybody to tell me it's going to get better. He's in a better place. You know, we have those platitudes that are just horrible. They come from a well-meaning, 
intentionally kind place, but the receiver hears them and it feels so awful and so dismissive. And I think we do the same thing with people who are feeling anxious and depressed. Yeah. You'll feel better. Go out, take a walk. You'll get over it. If only it was that Tom easy. Heels. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my favorite day in the entire world will be the day that my job is obsolete. Yeah. That because. I don't have wounded souls that need to seek therapy and get help because culturally, hopefully, there'll be a shift. Yes. Well, and you're part of that shift, and I thank you. I thank you. Um, it's been wonderful having you on this program. I would love to have you back. I would love to come back. Because there's so many... We could talk about this all day. Yeah, we could talk about this all day, and, and there's different... Well, and quickly before we end, um, can you, you talk about some of the groups that you're a part of? Because we do have people here at the wing that are suicide survivors and that have lost someone to a, uh, to a suicide that might be interested in the supportive services that you have? So through the Samaritans, um, we offer three different groups. Um, there is a group, group called Safe Place, which is for people who are survivors of suicide loss, not just in their families, but friends or people in the, in the community as well. We have a group called A Second Chance, which is for suicide attempt survivors. And we have a group that's called Second Chance for Families, for those who have a loved one with the lived experience of attempting suicide. Um, Through Sharing Kindness, we have um, a group for families that we will start running in November, and it's called Mindfulness. Mm. tending to your grief and families will come share a meal and then adults will have a session for themselves learning to be mindful through their grief and then the kids uh, will be separate and then when is that again that starts november 6th in orleans but we are hoping to duplicate it and have it on the upper cape or mid cape uh, probably in the spring. Okay, wonderful. Well, and I'd love for you to come back on. And so talk we'll talk about that. that. And one last thing, um, May 16th mm-hmm. at Veterans Beach in Hyannis will be the Cape and Islands Suicide Awareness Walk, um, a fundraiser for both the Samaritans and Sharing Kindness. And how cool would it be if you all could get a team together yes. and do the walk with us. Yes, I will definitely follow up with that. Our members here at the 102nd love to volunteer and get involved in the community, so um, I know lots of people would, would love that opportunity. We would love to have you. Wonderful. And again, I'm Jill Garvin. Please contact me if you have any suggestions for a podcast and you'd like to come on. Uh, Kathleen Shine O'Brien, who is our guest today. Uh, Again, she's located in Sandwich. If you'd like her contact information, um, contact me and I can give that to you. Uh, She, again, does private practice. She is a local therapist and is wonderful. I really appreciate you coming on here today. Thank you. I hope to have you back very soon. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. Okay, thank you again, and I look forward to speaking to you all again soon. Mm